five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rotkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. It's time for another episode that is not exclusively about business, but boy, is it relevant to business and investing. My guest is Dr. Omar Hatamle of NASA's Johnson Space Center. Omar has performed multiple really cool roles at NASA, including being head of innovation and deputy chief scientist. He was also the head of the Space Studies Program at the International Space University for many years. Omar is an expert on emerging technologies. So we talk about space, but also a lot about artificial intelligence and some other things. If you like futurism, you'll love this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Omar Hatamle. Hey, space enthusiasts, it's time for another episode of the Space Business Podcast. And I'm really excited because it's one of our non-business episodes, although I'm sure we'll actually touch upon many topics which are very relevant to business. My guest today is my old friend Omar Hatamle. Omar is currently at NASA in the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and I'm sure he's going to tell us about that. But Omar and I have gotten to know each other when I was attending International Space University, and Omar was actually the head of the Space Studies program. So that's the background. But Omar, welcome to the podcast, and why don't you just give us a short bio on yourself, please? Thank you, Rafael, and it's a pleasure to be with you guys today and joining your prestigious podcast. Heard a lot about it from different people, so it's great. So I've been at NASA for 24 years approximately. My last few assignments, I was a deputy chief scientist at NASA Ames and then chief innovation officer for engineering at JST. And then I did that for three, three and a half years and I was the executive director for the space studies program at ISU. And my latest assignment is head of technology integration for in-situ resource utilization, basically integrating the technologies for getting oxygen and water from the regolith of the moon and Mars. Great. Many interesting roles. If you actually had to pick some sort of role, if you could freely pick, and if you could just put something on your business card and it doesn't have to be a NASA business card, what title would you pick for yourself? What really yeah. drives you? I like um, actually building connections between non-obvious places. For example, when I was doing my chief innovation 
in officer role. One of the things that I liked is connecting and finding synergy, commonality, and establishing relationships and collaborations between industries that typically don't even talk to each other, right? So just interconnecting dots and, and looking at things from different perspective, out of the box thinking. And these are the things that they have a lot of passion for, a lot of education as well. So. And, that, and that's great. And obviously we're seeing more and more of that. So, I mean, just one obvious example would be that the drug discovery process has been completely transformed by artificial intelligence, AI. And we'll certainly talk a lot about AI in this podcast. But I guess one thing I remember from you, from your role as chief innovation officer and, and making these connections and also some of the lectures we had at ISU is that you also like futurism a lot. And so you follow all of these. I'm even inclined to call them futurist industries because they're already here in our presence, like AI, biotech, space, obviously, blockchain. So those are some of the ones which immediately come to mind. And they're by now, even to an average person, almost obvious. So I'm going to ask you slightly different questions. Besides the one I mentioned, like space, AI, biotech, blockchain, are there some other sort of futurist trends or sectors that people are not thinking enough about? Yeah, so there is a lot of, I call these emerging technologies, and um, everybody's aware of what these emerging technologies are. Now, the challenge and the good strategists are going to be able to do is what ecosystems will be emerging from these technologies. For example, you're talking about driverless car. So driverless cars, we know it's going to happen. It's a technology, definitely, it's maturing, and it's going to be mainstream. But then think about what ecosystems will be tailoring to these cars. For example, mobile offices, for example. People are going to spend a lot of time in the in the cars. Maybe it's find a way to deliver nutrition and food, entertainment. If people are going to, for example, going from one city to another, it doesn't make sense to sleep over because the car was going to drive you back. So maybe some industries will make maybe mobile places to sleep while you're driving. So think about um, the, the ecosystem surrounding all these kind of things. Same thing with VR, same thing with biotech. And biotech, for example, I see big one coming is aging. We're making significant progress in, um, in tackling the fundamentals of aging. Aging, genetics, for example, uh, we're understanding how to uh, how to manipulate T cells and and having targeted medications, targeted cures, as opposed to just having generic things. So the, the aging industry and the biotech, I think it's emerging in a f- way that's uh, fundamentally going to disrupt a lot of things. Because now the, the average lifespan is about 75, and if we were successful with the understanding and kind of reducing the impediments and improving the, the average lifespan, improved with the incredible advances we're doing with artificial intelligence and being able to come up with cures for diseases and vaccines. And then the next phase basically will be how to predict diseases before they even happen. 3D organs that will be printed specifically with your DNA. So all these things will be causing people to live much longer, right? So in return, you have to think about, okay, how is that going to affect the future of jobs? How is it going to affect the economy, the, the retirement? So everything is interconnected once you start thinking about it, right? And, the, and also the other thing is, we know all these emerging technologies. So again, how do you build them together to create new waves of capability? Uh, there is a company in Japan, for example, called Teleexistence that uses artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 5G, virtual reality, and they created um, a robot that, that actually represents you. And whatever the robot is doing, whatever the robot is touching and seeing, you control it and you get feedback. So it almost like represents you in a teleexistent way and different ways. So the beauty is what do we have right now? Understanding what's coming, but also how to put them together to create new value. I think that's going to bring a substantial benefit to everybody. Yeah, and let's stay on this aging thing for a moment because that's completely fascinating. And, and I think you're right. Right. Most people see sort of that the aging drugs and whatever other developments are happening on the horizon, but probably are not thinking enough about the consequences. So you already kind of alluded one of them. So suddenly the lifespan or or I guess um, what people actually call it and what's more important, the health span. So sort of like productive life right before you get um, some debilitating disease extends by you know 10 or 20 years. I mean, the current standard we have still in Western societies of like, you know, retiring with 65 years old is going to be completely ludicrous. In your mind, what will that do to sort of the workforce? 
workforce and what kind of implications yeah. will it have to for, for education and then re-education because yeah. then if you have a if your health span is like 60 years i mean do you even have to stay in the same job i mean given like cycles of technology can you even stay in the same job oh man this is a question we can talk for hours <laughs> so many dimensions first of all the cool thing about the aging is not only people are going to live uh, older but they're going to be uh, cognitively capable of performing jobs physically capable of doing things uh, they're going to have an active lifespan. So not only living uh, to a longer ages, but they're going to be very, very healthy, right? And, and the cool thing, for example, I tell people that, that the kids are being born today, I think definitely their average lifespan will be in the 120s easily. Um, we're understanding, for example, and the humans, the, every time we, uh, we, we grow the, the, poly, the polymers and the DNA, uh, they keep getting shorter. Eventually, we start having genetic you know, defects and mutations, and that's what causes uh, things to go south, right? Also, our cells, for example, they mutate about 50 times and then they die. But in certain cases, they don't die and they have these cells we call zombie cells or senescent cells, which they cause inflammation, long-term long -term diseases. So we're understanding also how to cure them, how to get rid of them. I, I say the people born today easily will be in the, in the 120s. So what, that's one thing, right? So we have people that are going to live older, uh, capable, uh, productive. Now, on the other side, uh, because of all these uh, things I told you now, the population, according to the UN, they estimate it's going to be about 10 billion people by 2050. But that doesn't take into account the advances in biomedicine and artificial intelligence and 3D printing organs. Once you combine all these things into the equation, then uh, the population of the earth will, in my opinion, will be substantially higher than the 10 billion. And then the advancements in technology, emerging technology, especially artificial intelligence, it's actually, for the first time, not only we're helping and uh, it's taking jobs for the manual labor. It's taking actually jobs that require intellectual capability. So mm -hmm. essentially, it impacts every single job. It doesn't mean that all, every single job is going to be gone, but um, the amount of jobs that requires to be done require less amount of people to be able to, to do it eventually, right? So first one, they're going to be working hand in hand with humans. Uh, so instead of having so many humans doing it, it's um, reduced amount of people uh, and leveraging on the incredible potential of these artificial intelligence systems. Uh, working hand in hand, and then the more they mature, then they become replacing more and more. So we have amount of jobs that are being diminishing, and we have populations going to be increasing. People are living longer, and that's when I say the current fundamentals of um, the economic models we have uh, they don't sustain. So we need to start looking into something completely different because. Uh, in the 2050s and the 2060s, when technologies become beyond imagination in terms of how advanced they are, there's a disconnect. And we, we need to start um, brainstorming, you know, tackling these issues way in advance. One thing you're alluding to here is, is basically technological unemployment, right, that some people call it. And the counter argument in the past has always been that some jobs have been destroyed, you know, but then basically they were replaced by other jobs like, you know, computer programmers and, and, and things like that. Is, that. is that something you share or are you more, because I personally, my suspicion is more that we're basically kind of having two curves, which are sort of like moving very, uh, still very close to the bottom and that basically actually not all of the jobs are getting replaced and that that's going to, the, the curves are going to move further, further, further apart and we might actually end up with a lot of technological unemployment. Is is that what you're, are you also getting at or? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing is uh, definitely every single technology always will create jobs and always will take jobs, right? So the challenge we're having right now is challenging and tackling jobs that require intellectual capability, which has never been done before. Always all the technologies that we've done is substituting manual labor, uh, like robots in factories and assembly lines and stuff like that. So for the first time in the century, 
uh, we're starting to impart on intellectual labors as well. But still, uh, there are going to be jobs created, of course, and then jobs displaced. The question is the balance, which is going to be tilting toward. And in my opinion, yeah. it's going to be reducing jobs substantially. Uh, of course, it's going to be creating jobs, but the delta, the difference between jobs created and jobs displaced is going to be in the jobs displaced, uh, in my opinion. Basically, uh, the skills of the people have to be different. The way, the times, for example, when we learn a degree and that's it, that's all you needed for the rest of your career. That's like way, way long gone. So we have to con constantly continue to learn, uh, continue to be able to change careers substantially, uh, always being adapted, um, critical thinking elements, think about creative ways and different ways that has, has been done before. And the curriculum and education itself also has to be different. Uh, look, for example, uh, engineering, typical engineering degrees go to four or five degrees, I mean, uh, years. Uh, by the time you finish, um, obviously the fundamentals are not, never going to change. The fundamentals of physics is going to be the same. But a lot of the technologies that are being taught in these technical degrees, by the time you finish, it's going to be obsolete. So in a sense, we're graduating people that are not ready for the, for the market. So it needs to be a faster uh, updating of the curriculums and build a bridge between academic institutions and industry so that we keep uh, seeing what are the needs and we keep updating these curriculums at a much faster, faster scale compared to what we've been doing right now. We're never going to get rid of all the jobs. That is impossible. Uh, but the majority of the jobs, uh, I think they are at risk. And of course, if you ask uh, 10 years from now, I would say 60 to 70% of the jobs don't even exist today, right? So jobs yep. will be created according to the technologies. But if you take everything into consideration, um, and like I said, I see, in my opinion, um, more jobs will be displaced than, than created for sure. Yeah, and, and I think, like you said, this must have tremendous implications for rethinking our education system. I mean, do you think sort of the traditional model is going to survive or are we going yeah. to move towards more sort of like you have these companies now in the U.S. like Lambda School, where it's basically very targeted, specific courses, right, to, to place people in specific uh, types of work? No, so the thing is um, that fundamentally the educational system hasn't changed for, for, for centuries. Where yeah. We have actually a teacher or an instructor in front of the class. And then we have 30, 40, 50 students uh, getting the information at the same scale, at the same level. And um, so like we're doing, we're trying to, to do, like we mentioned, having individualized uh, medications um, and medicine. Each person is different. Genetic composition is different. So the future is going to be individualized medicine. And the same thing applies to, to education. Uh, some people like to learn with repetition. Some people like to learn by examples. Some people like to get the material and learn it by themselves. By having a single source of information distributed across all the class, there's always going to be, according to the bell curve, people lagging behind, uh, people actually sometimes ahead of the, or the curve, ahead of that instructor. It's not efficient way of producing uh, knowledge, right? So uh, according to everybody's intellectual capability, if we use advanced systems, smart intelligence systems, they'll be able to cater the educational curriculum specifically to that intellectual capability uh, needs of the person and get you from point A to point Z in a fraction of the time. Uh, and then, of course, it, we need to complement that with social aspects as well. We cannot just create robots where people are in front of a computer and, and, and being able to have issues, you know, in social yeah. society. But, uh, so, but in the, the fundamental uh, way of, of teaching educational aspects, I think um, technology will definitely have a big role 
and we can definitely make a lot of progress to, to create these kind of things and introduce a very important element of critical thinking. And most of the educational systems are spoon feeding, teaching us you know, how to memorize things and how to think, but we need to actually think differently in a critical way that the advancements of education will give us a little bit more of an advantage. Yeah, we'll come back to all of these societal implications of new technologies a little bit later on, because I mean, again, that's something we can talk for hours about. Um, just wanna finish up on this point. It's, it's not just the education, right? As in my mind, it's also like the placing people into the right jobs where yeah. it seems like today, I mean, when, when I I kind of picked my job it was almost sort of like a haphazard combination of like okay what has what have my parents what were my parents jobs and what was i exposed to sort of like randomly you know as as a teenager and doesn't seem to have changed a lot and that doesn't strike me as really ideal in a world when we have just infinite information almost on everybody and we should be able to place people in like jobs which are good for them and good for the world in a much more efficient way no no completely so that comes from an early age typically people they see role models for example they want to imitate, they want to go to these careers. Look at space, for example, after the moon landing, there was an incredible flood of people that wanted to go into engineering, science, technologies. Uh, so we need uh, to have things like that. First of all, we need to, to have strategies and say, okay, in the next 10 years, um, uh, strategically, we anticipate these are going to be the jobs that we anticipate is going to be relevant. And so start having things that encourage people to go into these degrees, into these um, uh, these studies, so actually they, we can actually control and entice people to, to embark in, in, in these careers that will be able to help in what we see is going to be relevant and needed for society in the next decade. So it's a, it's a combination between the people designing the curriculums, uh, the industry, uh, role models. It's a combination of every, everything. Okay, so let's make that slightly tangible. So if you had a... Um... I forget now how, how many kids you have of what ages, but let's say you have sort of like a 14-year-old kid, right, which is sort of the age yeah. when you can start, start specializing. Even if not in your school, you can start like yeah. selecting your readings and stuff. As a parent, what would you advise your 14-year-old kid? Like what to? What are some of the areas to focus on? Obviously, the one that going to be relevant when they graduate at 14 is still going to be anything that has to do with advanced robotics, uh, advanced machine learning, advanced uh, artificial intelligence, quantum computers, autonomous systems, uh, virtual uh, augmentation, virtual reality. All these jobs are, are going to be very, very relevant um, in the next uh, decade. But like I said, I will complement that as, as well with teaching them uh, different skills uh, con with unconventional ways, like always keep learning uh, and diversify your knowledge, not only uh, specialize in one thing, single thing, know more about different things, uh, constantly be adaptive to change and, and get out of the comfort zone. Uh, sometimes people, you know, they get into a career, they get into a specialty and they get comfortable. They don't want to change. They find it difficult to, to change from, from that realm. So also changing and being always um, capable of, of doing different things. All these things, I, I think, will be, will be helpful. Emotional intelligence, how mm -hmm. to do these kind of things. I think all these will be beneficial for sure. So in that list of emerging technologies you, you just mentioned, there, there was one which I also like a lot, but which very often people forget about, which is uh, quantum computing. Yeah. Is that is that something you also think people maybe are underappreciating, or what's what's your yeah. view on quantum computing and how that might impact our lives in the next, yeah. I don't know, 10, 20 years? So, so, so quantum computers is um, like any other technology. And um, you know, sometimes I feel that we're judging some of these technologies, artificial intelligence, quantum, whatever, as like you, somebody looking at a small baby and saying, okay, this baby cannot run a marathon. Well, of course, it's still a baby, but wait until it becomes an adult. And, and the same thing with these technologies. I mean, quantum, we're making progress every single year. It has advantages and disadvantages. For example, depending on what kind of calculations, if it, you're using quantum to solve something like the travel or salesman's problem, 
uh, it does it in a, in a fraction fraction of the best fastest computer that we have. But if you do it in certain cases, it's not it doesn't have that much advantage compared to conventional computers. But um, the the trend is quantum is going to be able to to impact so much, and when combined with advanced technologies, uh, I think it will open huge 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 waves of capabilities that that are going to be fundamentally transformative in society and economy and and every single aspect. Whether it's um, you know the jobs, medicine, education, security, science, uh, finding so many things, um, when combined artificial intelligence with quantum, is going to be very different, uh, completely new waves. So I, I definitely see a huge future for quantum computers. And the beauty about that also, quantum computers are very expensive to maintain and and have. Mm-hmm. But there's a company in Los Angeles actually. Uh, they're starting to allow. Uh, startups and other companies to connect to their their, their quantum using an API uh, that's going to be enabling big waves actually of startups to go into and leverage on the incredible value from quantum computers. So you go there, you you through an API, the quantum does the calculations for you and you, you bring it back. And imagine how much you will be able to save and how much new startups will, will be enabling by doing that. And then companies like Amazon, like Google, like IBM, like Apple, for example, also they're having a lot of uh, capabilities for companies to leverage of their artificial intelligence algorithms and systems using APIs as well. All these things are becoming democratized, so we don't have to develop these things in-house. That means that small companies with less resources uh, will be able to jump into the, into the field and, and become successful and create value because of the infrastructure being created by all these big players. There we go. Quantum computing as a service. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's, so let's stay on um, computing, so to say, and, and let's talk about artificial intelligence AI, because, I mean, I, I know that's a topic that's dear to your heart. It's, it's dear to my heart. I think we both have partial background um, in, in artificial intelligence. So you actually just wrote a book um, on AI, I think, uh, Between Brains. What, what's the book about? Yeah, so, so in the book, actually, that was a very, very challenging book to write, to be honest, because... Uh, artificial intelligence uh, could be easy, could be complicated in, in terms of what you're trying to explain. So the challenge is how to write something that's actually for all the general public. And if somebody's an expert, is also going to get something beneficial out of it as well. So we talked about uh, the evolution of artificial intelligence. I mean, why why suddenly this decade is artificial intelligence, to give an example? I mean, artificial intelligence is nothing new. It's been talked about since the 50s. But the algorithms uh, behind artificial intelligence were very basic, uh, were very archaic. And until recently, we've made substantial advancements in, in the algorithms themselves. We have multiple layers, um, extremely complex so we we started to better emulate certain aspects of uh, of uh, simulated intelligence in certain and we have much more data now right yeah exactly so the same thing is okay once we have these amazing algorithms you need computational power to be able to solve it because with a conventional computer it's going to take you forever and uh, and that's what i've talked about you know looking outside different industries uh, to find value so the gaming industry um, developed the gpus the graphic processing units that have thousands of processors uh, actually in, in them um, so in, instead of having, for example, something like quad speed or eight speed, for example, with the conventional computers, which where you do a calculation, you solve it, you wait for the other one, you, everything goes in series. Imagine being able to do five, six, or ten thousand calculations instantaneously. So now, that, because they're being produced at mass scale, so we have a lot of people that have can afford it, they have access to it. So we have the fundamental uh, algorithms, we have the the, the computational resources, and the third element. Is the, is the data. So now we have incredible sources uh, of data that we can feed it and, and, and teach the algorithms how to produce things. And we don't try to, to, to hear uh, the reader into 
uh, artificial intelligence is going to be the best thing or the worst thing. It's we, we create a balanced approach where we, we show and discuss everything happening with it, and then we'll let it to the reader understand the bigger broad uh, or, the, or, the, or the thing. Um, and then, for example, we talked about the data, Rafael. So the data is very, very important because the algorithms are going to be as good as the data. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't tell you how many cases of, of bias uh, in the data that we've been feeding it. So the algorithms were producing biased results, obviously. So mm -hmm. uh, first of all, is in developing the algorithm itself. Uh, Google, for example, when it was translating a doctor, it always referred to it as he. And it was <laughs> translating a nurse, it was trans referring to it as she. So, so immediately there was bias because the programmers, yep. the people the <laughs> were, were actually biased in that regard. But then this, let's assume that the algorithms are fine, right? They're, they're unbiased. But then the data that you feed the algorithms uh, in, um, and one of the cases is um, in banks, you know, they were trying to automate the decision process for loan applications. They noticed it was making a lot of uh, racist uh, decisions because the data that was fed was based on bias from humans. And there were sometimes uh, racist toward uh, different ethnicities, different genders, different cultural backgrounds. So that was reflected in the decisions being made in the artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not biased, obviously, but the data was biased. So an essential, essential part, a very important aspect of it is how do we clean the data? How do we make sure that the data is being very helpful and in the right direction? And we're making a lot of process, progress in that regard because we're developing new classes of algorithms. There's supervised algorithms, there's unsupervised algorithms. And just to give you a quick example of what the difference is. So uh, supervised algorithms, when you give a computer a million pictures and you say, okay, classify these into dogs and to, into cats. So it classifies them into buckets, into cats mm -hmm. and dogs. We're telling it the out, what the output is and the computer does everything for us. Now, the unsupervised, we give this million pictures to a computer and let it go by itself, mm -hmm. finding trends on itself. So it starts finding trends saying, okay, these are animals inside the house. These are animals inside the house. Uh, this is uh, rainy weather. This is sunny, sunny weather. So it starts creating trends in ways that are amazing. And imagine when it starts using these trends in the medical fields, for example, finding credible aspects of, of, of signatures in, in blood chemistry and in, in enzymes and so many aspects of human physiology that tells you you're going to have a disease 10 years before you have a disease even because it's starting to decipher these trends and these patterns in ways it's impossible for humans to do. So uh, these, are, these are great. And then the, the one that I was refer finally going to be talking about is there's a new class of algorithms um, called less than one shot. So, for example, uh, instead of having millions, you can all, only have hundreds of data uh, for the computer to, to learn from it. So just to give you an example how the fundamentals of this technology is. So if you're trying to decipher from uh, one to nine, for example, so the computer immediately classifies that one, seven are equivalent, for example, nine, eight, and five are almost, or number three are almost equivalent because of the way they are. So immediately starts classifying the data in, in different buckets. And you need only a fraction of the data to be inputted to the algorithms to be able to learn and make decisions. So we need to put more emphasis into advanced um, algorithmic systems that actually don't need as much data, but very essential that actually we, we understand how to clean the data and, and feed unbiased data that's actually going to make sense. 
Otherwise, um, it's going to create more issues and more problems. Okay, so let's let's explore this topic of data, at least in a couple of aspects. Um, so one aspect would be, you're basically saying that, you know, we have to clean the data, right? Now, depending on how fast we move with AI, and let's say we get to these like scenarios, some people work about that, uh, worry about that AI basically becomes, let's use these ridiculous terms like, like self-aware or wakes up or, you know, starts doing stuff by itself. The existing data set, obviously, in the world, we wouldn't even be able to clean the data like the AI would just go out and basically basically look at what's on Wikipedia, what's on the web, and that data set is biased. And any sort of cleaning activity would obviously take time and resources. So is that like a race we haven't sort of automatically lost or unless we're very, very quick? No, I don't think we've, we've lost it, but uh, we need to start paying more attention. I think what, what happened uh, is we weren't paying a lot of attention to these kind of things and we were putting, giving all the data that we had into the systems because we want to train the algorithms. But now that we're paying more attention, I think there's definitely ways to tackle these issues and, and create them. I, I don't think we're ever going to create completely 100% unbiased. There's always going to be some bias in certain ways. But if we at least can realistically minimize it as much as possible, uh, I think that's a, that's a reasonable goal that we can do. Okay. And then the other thing I wanted to ask about data is, so there's sort of an inherent clash, I suppose, with privacy, which is also a concern for many people these days. You know, I remember when I was doing machine learning AI at, at university, even that is now five years ago, so it's, it's ages ago, but sort of one of the guiding principles was it's like, if you have the choice between better data and better algorithms, it's not even a question. You always go for more data and, and, and better data. If that is the case, how does that square with, like, you know, um, yeah. uh, d demands for more pri privacy? And, and what kind of right. political implications does that have? Because, I mean, you could go, to, you could get also between countries into a, a race to the bottom, right? Like, the less privacy you have, the more data you have, the more the AI and that country that has no privacy advances. No, absolutely. So that's, um, that's going to be actually a challenge between stifling innovation and between and having uh, over-regulation and stifling re uh, innovation and between having free market completely. People are going crazy with everything. Everything is available. So the, the issue is that policies and regulations are never going to catch up to the speed of technological evolution. Uh, so so the, the challenge is how do we make regulations and policies that are not very rigid, they're kind of actually easy to adapt and change as we're moving along. And then having them futuristic driven, for example, not only what's available today, but start doing a strategy of how things, according to what we have, how are things going to look in the next five years and base your policies, regulations, and, and laws into, into these realms to be able to, to have balance between not putting so much that you're stopping innovation and creativity, but at the same time, you ensure privacy of the people, human rights is respected, and, and it's not going crazy in, 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 the, in the negative directions, right? So this is the delicate balance that we need to, to understand. And now, actually, a lot of countries, I think so over 60 now, 63 nations, they have um, artificial intelligence um, and national policies that they're starting to institute uh, and strategies. Uh, so it's, people are starting to understand it. And, and obviously, everybody wants to do the right thing. They want to make, ensure that we're leveraging an incredible power of these systems and algorithms at the same time, uh, maintaining uh, human laws, privacies, and, and rights, and all these kind of things. So the privacy aspect, so that's one common concern that's mentioned in the AI debate. The, the other concern, of course, is what people like Elon Musk and, and Max Tegmark and MIT and some others are, are voicing that, that, that really sort of like the, the potential danger of AI just running out of control. Um, it could be a couple of ways of running out of control. It could be running out of control in that there's very advanced systems and then they could just get abused by malicious human actors, right? It could be for, you know, like very smart weapons, yeah. or it could actually be the actual AI kind of 
running out of control in, 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 in the sense of that the AI becomes very powerful and doesn't doesn't follow our sort of like um, most treasured ethical principles. Where do you stand on that yeah. debate and concern? This topic is very polarizing, actually. If you see the international research and scientific community, they're almost evenly divided. Uh, some of them say, well, it's going to be eventually difficult to control. It's going to be causing more more damage than it's going to cause benefit. And then on the other side, people are saying it's going to be great. We're going to be able to be controllable, going to create a great value for society and humanity. So, And it's interesting because it's almost 50-50 split on, on these fields, right? And um, the question that I have also always all the time I think about is, when some, I, let's, let's go back to the example of the little baby. You know, if the little baby, for example, if you're teaching it values, you're teaching it, you know, the fundamentals of human nature and stuff like that, when it grows up, how much is going to maintain of the fundamental boundary conditions? And that's the same thing I, I think about artificial intelligence. If we give it boundary conditions that actually comply and adhere to the fundamentals of uh, privacy, of human rights, and, and, and decency and everything else, as it matures and it goes uh, to the next phases, is it going to maintain the boundary conditions that we gave us or is it going to diverge yeah. and mutate into something different? Like right now, we're in the first phase still. It's um, what we call it weak or narrow artificial intelligence. I think the next um, next step is going to be general artificial intelligence, uh, which is going to be actually more capable of emulating so many aspects of the human brain. Uh, and then the super artificial intelligence, which probably will get in 20, 25, 30 years, that's when things become crazy, right? That's when people are concerned about. So the question is, the boundary conditions and the fundamentals that we taught, these basic algorithms at the week or uh, stage that we are right now, are they going to maintain as they progress in advancements and complexity or are going to deviate? And that's the question I don't think anybody can actually answer. It's going to be, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to, to keep, you know, watching it closely, you know, tackling with it and, and modifying it and adjusting as we go uh, so we don't um, lose control of these kind of systems. But it's like any other technology, Rafael. It's going to have incredible advantages and incredible disadvantages. Do you think if something like this happens, that AI becomes, and, and again, some of these terms are ridiculous, but like becomes self-aware, sort of like a uh, you know a system basically reaches the stage of artificial yeah. general intelligence. When we talk about alien intelligence in, in space, sometimes you know the whole question comes up, or about life in general, like there's a legitimate question in astrobiology, right? It's like, would we be even able to recognize it, right? Because yeah. it might be so different from our life. Yeah. Do, you, yeah. do you think if an AGI emerges in computers in a network that we would necessarily be able to recognize it or could it just kind of fly under the radar screen? That's, that's going to be tough, you know, because, you know, like as humans, actually, we have a limit to the things we can comprehend. Uh, look, for example, at the primate, like the, uh, one, less than 1% DNA between, you know, the, the monkeys and the humans. And look how much difference in cognitive ability we have, right? So imagine, uh, you know, like we're talking about alien civilizations, if somebody had even higher uh, percentages of intellectual uh, quotients or stuff like that. Uh, I think we have a limit, but, you know, uh, if depending on, on the fundamentals of biological evolution we've had, we can only reach a certain limit and beyond that we cannot comprehend. So there's going to be elements, obviously, that um, are going to be, you know, within our comprehension. And some might be beyond our comprehension once it goes crazy, you know, in the, in the next 30 or 40 years, uh, something extremely advanced. Uh, that's uh, really, I have no idea what, what the answer will be eventually. Do, do you think that we then have to, some people basically advocate that we have to become some sort of cyborgs or kind of like Star Trek Borgs, right? So to be able to at least keep up a little bit, is, do yeah. you think that's the way it's going? Well, I think in a sense we already are. I mean, uh, we're uh, having so much uh, technology being um, 
first of all, we everybody has almost a wearable device, uh, our yeah. phones, our glasses, uh, smart glasses, smart headphones. Uh, now the next phase will be implantable system, maybe implantable uh, organ will be or, or, or prosthesis, right? Uh, we have, example, a glove uh, at NASA that we are using. You can It allows you to, to do manual labor without getting tired at all for hours and hours. And uh, we have exoskeletons that allows you to perform things uh, uh, for substantially carry more weights that you, that, you, that you can. And then once you start going to implanting uh, more stuff, essentially we're becoming a cyborg, humans and, and, and technology. And the more we advance, uh, the more uh, seamless uh, these technologies will seem and the, most in, the more integrated will be to the human body as well. Yeah, that's definitely, we are, we are right now doing it, but as we move forward in the future, I think it will be extremely, extremely advanced. It will be almost as good um, as, as some human uh, organs eventually. Okay, talking about, about AI and so when we, when we reach that, that phase of artificial general intelligence, is, um, I usually ask at the end of the podcast about science fiction books, but let me ask a question right now. Is there any sort of um, depictions of artificial intelligence in, in science fiction that uh, come to your mind, which you think are more plausible than others? I, I personally yeah. feel like a lot of science fiction actually skirts the question and somehow there's not enough AI as there. Yeah, so, yeah, no. So uh, definitely, the the personal assistants. Uh, so Im imagine when you have a computer, for example, that have a knowledge of almost collect intellectual systems of almost billions of people. So it knows incredible vast amount of information. It puts things in context. It connects the dots. It's presented in a way that's beyond your imagination. So uh, all these, and then co combined with a humanoid robot that looks like a human almost, right? I mean, the more we advance in the next 40 or 50 years. It will be almost impossible, in my opinion, to see distinguish between if somebody's a robot or a human. Uh, the, let's say 75 years, 100 years. I mean, the short span is irrelevant. Uh, the modern human has been in existence for hundreds of thousands of years. So, you know, 50, 100 years is irrelevant, irrelevant in the big scheme of things. But eventually we'll reach a point where we have humanoid robots with extremely advanced technology, advanced intelligence. And, and it's going to be difficult to distinguish between humans and, and that. So that's the aspects in, of, of science fiction that I think will become a reality um, in the, the next decades. And always, just one more thing, I always tell people this is finally the decade where finally science fiction is going to start happening. You know, when we grew up, <laughs> we were thinking in the year 2000, we're going to see flying cars, cars driving by themselves. We're going to be able to print things, clothing in your house. Suddenly, this is the decade that things are going to happen. You're going to start seeing flying cars. Something's going to be the norm. Autonomy is going to be more, you know, ubiquitous everywhere. You're going to be able to print things in your house more and more. Deliveries, everything is changing substantially. So the things that kids or young adults were thinking about, uh, they're starting to materialize into something uh, real, actually, in, in this decade. So moving forward, It's only going to get um, more more advanced and, and amazing. Oh, oh, fingers crossed. There's certainly a number of things just from Star Trek that I want, like uh, first first yeah. off the rep, the replicators and and of course yeah. the transporters, the transporters. But if your um, discussion on 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 robots, what I take away from that, it's basically not going to be the Star Wars R 2 D 2 and it's going to be more like the Battlestar Galactica Cylons in the in the yeah. remake. <laughs> but, but, but everything goes both ways, right? I mean, I'm thinking as um, you know for these, but if obviously. If, if you can create a robot like this for, for to be a you know society and be in the house, sure. Yeah, the same thing applies in in in, in war and you know, in military applications as well, right? So it, uh, it's a, it's like I said, something could be applied for for all the aspects. Could be used for for several aspects. Um, I thought about it specifically for societal uses, but if you have something so advanced, so good, 
then definitely it could be used for, for other aspects as well, like a military. Yeah. So talking about Star Wars, um, let's briefly move to space because it's the Space Business Podcast, so we have to talk about it a little bit. And of course, you are at NASA JSC and, and, and we're at ISU. So I'm going to ask you a similar question I asked about the, the emerging technologies in, in general. So when we think about space, most people and, and space business uh, segments, most people will immediately think about satellite communications, remote sensing, maybe even GNSS, the global navigation. What are some of the things in space people are not talking enough about? Well, uh, first of all, I think we need to eventually have uh, faster ways to get into different planets. The conventional propulsion that we have right now, it's, it's not going to be the way to the future. We're going to have to develop things that substantially get us faster from, from one point to another. Uh, we're going to be able, able to better understand how to use technologies to mitigate radiation. And actually, if you go there faster, that you know, combined with the mitigation factors, it's going to be a pretty simple impact on humans. And medicine, medications, for example, you know, uh, uh, and how to, to have, for example, health issues if you have, when you're having a long-term Uh, trade, for example, how to tackle uh, advanced medical, medical uh, needs when somebody needs it. Uh, advanced autonomy systems when you're creating navigation uh, vehicles going into different places. At advanced autonomy that actually can do much better things than humans can do. Uh, faster communications. Uh, and, um, and for example, look at um, astronomy. Astronomy, we have millions and millions of data points. And uh, it's very complicated to go through them and make, make sense out of it, right? So if you use The, the, the good technologies to be able to decipher and find trends in something that makes sense and, and create value out of it, that's going to be huge. Um, and then uh, the advancement in, in the basic uh, materials for, for creating, you know, better designs, better materials that can create, you know, sustain more extreme uh, temperatures, lightweight, where you don't need as much propulsion to get it out. So many, so many things, so many aspects in, in space and uh, applications we can use for communication, for satellites, new ways of satellites. Look at satellites where they were 25, 30 years ago mm -hmm. and where they are right now. Uh, and look, for example, before a satellite used to last like for 20, 30 years, And this costs hundreds of millions of dollars, and only big, big corporations used to be able to do it. Now, mm -hmm. it's like even a startup, you know, if you bunch of fresh graduates can essentially put a nice business idea, business plan, and get funded and create a company that actually can, can launch satellites into low Earth orbit, do the job of what 20 or 30 years ago would have been impossible, except for big corporations spending hundreds of millions of dollars. So all the, the technologies and the capabilities, but also how everything is changing and allowing more people to be involved and in, in being part and being a portion of what's called space business. A lot of countries, actually, that don't have capability to launch satellites or rockets or whatever, they still can have a big piece of the, of the, the pie. You know, you can repurpose a lot of the industries that they have and being able to, to tether them to create space applications in avionics, for example, in medicine, in robotics, in materials, in programming. So a lot of these things could be tailored and repurposed and be part of the space industry. So the democratization, I think, and, and enabling much, many more people at the nations, but also at the individual level, is something that's new and that will continue to go that direction. So if you had to start a new space company today, what, what would be your choice? Oh, that's, uh, I don't know, that's uh, a challenge. I need to, but the choice will be something, do a market scan, see what gaps do we have right now, or, or, or something, not necessarily a gap, you know, how you could do a better mousetrap, for example, And, and then do something unique. Um, if you do, uh, you have to be proactive. You cannot, you cannot be reactive anymore. So if you come up with, a, uh, after doing a scan, something that's definitely a, a need for it and become proactive before anybody else is doing it, that's going to give you the strategic edge and advantage uh, to become successful. 
Uh, otherwise, if you're just doing whatever somebody else is doing and become reactive, uh, the possibility of success going to be minimum. And so that means a lot of the things we talked about, we did take a little bit of a, a longer-term view, which is which is really exciting. So, and in space, if I understood correctly, also at NASA right now, one of the things you're working on is is in space resources, right? Which obviously yeah. today also sounds a little bit more futuristic, but will probably happen sooner than people think. The ideal vision many of us have where we should get to in space is really just like permanent settlements in places like the moon and Mars. So like not the Antarctic research station, but like actually like thriving communities in space. How do you think we can get there? Like what's going to be the trajectory? So it's, uh, it's definitely, that is something, uh, no question is going to happen. Uh, it's just, you know, we're building step by step. We're building the things and technologies needed to enable us to go that way. So talk about, for example, what I'm doing right now, how to create um, oxygen and water uh, from the moon. So we have found, for example, in the South Poles, uh, we have a lot of ice water that we can actually melt. And once you have water, you can create it into drinking water for, for drinking. You can uh, you know, break it down into hydrogen and oxygen. Mm -hmm. You can use the oxygen for, for, for breathing, and then you can use oxygen and hydrogen for fuel. You can use the um, uh, plasticizer and, and use the regular, for example, for construction. Uh, so uh, the, cool, the cool thing is how to leverage as much as possible on the resources you have on the planet. Because the most expensive thing is getting these kind of things, these kind of elements that we just mentioned, how to get them out of Earth. That is where the expenses are. But if you can actually find a way to get them from from the surfaces, from the in situ resources, uh, that that's going to be the game changer uh, economically. Obviously, it has to be feasible. It cannot actually be a way, a technology that costs you more uh, to produce these things from from the surface of the moon versus comparing to to bringing it from Earth. But the economic value, which definitely it is there. Uh, and you can create everything there um, from the local resources. I think that is the future. And eventually, uh, the moon will be a proving ground. We'll be able to vet a lot of technologies and eventually um, head to Mars. And after building you know, permanent presence on the moon, eventually will be the next step is going to Mars and building a permanent presence there. Let's try because we have to wrap up here. Summarize a little bit. So, we, you know, we talked a lot about artificial intelligence. We, we talked now about space. We sort of implicitly mentioned some of the other emerging technologies, you know, like biotech and blockchain and quantum computing. Yeah. If we look back from 2030 onto the 2020s, what do you think we'll be looking back on? Like, how do we, how will we remember this decade other than beginning with COVID? Uh, actually, that will be where, where, th where things finally started to pick up, you know, it's like when things be started becoming exponential. I mean, uh, until recently, everything was moving linearly. We weren't having that much progress. Uh, so things are moving very fast and in an exponential fashion. And the cool thing, what's enabling that as well is a technology uh, is no longer biased for, for one single industry. It's basically, you can apply for all the industries. Look at 3D printers. 3D printers, for example, were created for creating parts. And now we can use them for construction. We can use them actually for, for making food, for printing clothes, for, for uh, you know printing organs, for producing components and parts. And that's something we're going to leverage on substantially when we go to different planets. So the cool thing is once you have that incredible synergy in technology across industries, that's going to enable this technology to mature at a faster rate. So that's going to be, you know, creating things at an exponential. So I think this decade will be when things finally sticking up in exponential fashion into a way that's going to bring significant progress and benefit to humanity and, um, and society as a whole. So that's, that's on the technology side, but you already sort of alluded to a lot to the political side. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I think that has a prominent role in, in, in your book as well. Do you think the political side, and by political, I mean sort of really the, the social sciences at large, the politics, uh, law, and everything else. I think you already said that we probably won't be able 
to to keep pace with the technological um, developments. Does does that concern you? Like, I mean, obviously the last industrial revolution sort of like there's some arguments that the backend effects of that were not very positive. Um, yeah. do, do you think we'll be able to manage that, or what should we do in that in that regard? No, that's uh, that's going to be I think something. Um, a lot of these uh, laws and regulations and agreements have to be done at an international scale. Look the autonomous cars, for example. I think the ethics is is a bigger roadblock than the technology itself. And if you do ethics, for example, uh, how do you program the, the system? Uh, who does it have the priority? Is the safety? Is it the person inside the car? Is it the person outside of the car, for example? And if the person outside the car is a small kid, you know, who's got priority, the small kid or, or the person inside the car? If it's an older adult, all these things, the systems are not going to make the termination by themselves. Somebody needs to make these determinations. And these typically are based on ethical panels and people making these determinations. Uh, and these obviously have to be done at an international scale. You cannot have a system that, that's good, for example, in one state or one country or sure. one nation and not on the other ones. So things like that have to be done at a, at a bigger scale. Uh, same thing with, with artificial intelligence, like vision, uh, machine recognition, for example, uh, vision analysis. Uh, I think it would be nice to have um, international agreements and what's, uh, what's allowed, what's not allowed, uh, for what purposes. Um, because otherwise there will be disconnect and, and we need to be synchronized um, as, as an international community when we make deterministic decisions in these aspects. Fingers crossed it's going gonna, it's gonna to all work out. You already mentioned that you also have the optimistic view that now 2020s is going to be the, the decade when we finally start realizing a lot of the, the dreams that were in the science fiction books. Uh, which, which then brings up the interesting question that uh, I guess you know we'll have to write some new science fiction books actually to yeah. imagine what comes beyond the you know the the space the spacecraft and the flying right. cars and so forth. Uh, but I always finish this podcast basically asking people what do, do you like science fiction and if you do like science fiction like what what books or movies or series do you like and and why? Yeah, so um, I like science fiction because uh, science fiction doesn't predict the future. Science fiction enables the future, I believe. So it gives the ideas for the young scientists, engineers, and technologists to think uh, subconsciously about these kinds of elements, and, and that's how they start producing these kinds of things. So, but, but to be able to do that, you need to be a very creative person, right? And that's, that's what actually becomes the catalyst that puts everything together. I think my favorite movies are probably Interstellar mm -hmm. and, and, and The Martians, probably. But Interstellar is definitely a good one as well. And it's, um, it's amazing. I mean, obviously, to make a movie interesting, you have to not always adhere to the laws of physics and, and, and reality. Otherwise, it might become boring, right? But uh, for the most part, uh, they were, you know, very well thought, thought up and they have good aspects and it's kind of exciting to, to watch. Interstellar was definitely a great one because they tried to actually keep their science, get their science yeah. right, right? It's like Kip, Kip Thorne from Stanford was the scientific advisor on on that movie. Yeah. So anyway, Omar, uh, we're, we're wrapping up here. Thank you so much for being present. But what I would like to finish up on is that, you know, to listeners, if, if you enjoyed some of these types of conversations that Omar and I are having here, I know, Omar, you actually plan to have a, a big event in the coming summer that will probably feature a lot of very similar discussions. Do you want to quickly give a couple of minutes on that? Yeah, so that's an event based on the book. It's basically called Ecosystems 2030. And uh, What we're going to do is look at all these emerging technologies and what ecosystems will be created in this decade. So we're going to look at the same thing, what's happening in the biotech, in the fintech, the future of education, the future of augmented reality, virtual reality, autonomy, artificial intelligence. So what is going to the future look like? And what do people need to adapt and transform to remain relevant? Otherwise, it'll be completely marginalized by the fast evolution of speed of technology and how fast it's evolving.
Well, that's, that's fantastic. I'm definitely going to try to be there and we're going to put the uh, the link to the event as well as to your book in the notes to the podcast. Omar, thank you so much. Um, I feel like we should be doing this, uh, I don't know, every two or three years or so and kind of look back and see um, how, how stupid or, or, or not stupid our <laughs> predictions were. That's a good idea. Great. See you soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Raphael. It's a pleasure. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.